With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This month marks 10 years since revelations in Greece rattled the whole of Europe and kicked off a blistering financial crisis in the country, a crisis whose echoes can still be heard. We look back on a decade of efforts to balance the books. And stock ticker symbols are normally pretty boring fare, but there are a few companies that have chosen fun letters to denote their businesses on the markets. And the funny thing is, that seems to make the stocks do better. First up, though. It was a tense night for Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. But the results have been counted, and he's won a second term in yesterday's federal election. You are sending our Liberal team back to work, back to Ottawa, with a clear mandate. We will make life more affordable. We will continue to fight climate change. We will get guns off our streets, and we will keep investing in Canadians. It was a tight and, at times, aggressive race, and a narrow victory for Mr. Trudeau, who's lost his majority and will now lead a minority government. His first win drew plenty of attention and praise for his progressive policies and a straight-talking approach to government. But the Prime Minister's first term wasn't entirely rosy. This election was in large part a referendum on the record of Justin Trudeau, who's been the prime minister for the past four years and who's accomplished a fair amount, but who's also stumbled into a series of scandals that have damaged his image. Brooke Unger is our America's editor. The most prominent and the ones that probably shifted the most votes were, first of all, allegations that he and his office had leaned on the justice minister to drop the prosecution of an engineering firm in Quebec called SNC-Lavalin, and he was condemned by the ethics commissioner for doing that. So that was a pretty serious scandal. And then close to the election came revelations that as a young man, he'd put on blackface and brownface. This is something uh, that... Uh, I deeply, deeply regret uh, darkening your face, uh, regardless of the context or the circumstances, is always unacceptable. And, you know, this is one of the most politically correct leaders of government in the world. So it was very embarrassing to have that come out. Do you think we should read much into this election result, his losing of his majority as a function of, of these scandals? Have they permanently damaged him, do you think? Well, I mean, today starts a new chapter. He will remain prime minister in charge of a minority government. He'll have a chance to enact an agenda for his second term, which will be a little bit more difficult since it'll depend on other parties for cobbling together majorities. But the kind of halo he had when he first became prime minister is probably permanently spudged, but that doesn't mean that he won't be an effective leader. 
nor that he hasn't been one in his first term. I mean, what, what did he accomplish during his time? Well, I mean, on paper, he was quite a successful prime minister. He came into office saying he wanted to govern for the middle class and what he called those aspiring to join it. He recognized in a way before Donald Trump was really on the scene, you know, before Brexit, that there was a lot of anger among people in the middle class and that this was leading to populism. And his sort of thesis was, I can avoid that by doing stuff for the middle class. And in office, he actually did do stuff for the middle class. I mean, most notably, he created a means-tested childcare benefit, which put quite a lot of money in the pockets of people at the bottom half of the income scale. He also cut taxes for the middle class and raised them for the top incomes. And so he actually improved median incomes for people in the lower half of the income scale. He also introduced a national carbon tax, and this has been one of the most contentious issues in this election. The conservatives ran against it. Andrew Scheer, the conservative candidate, said his first act as prime minister would be to end this national carbon tax. But he didn't win very much credit from environmentalists for this because at the same time, he sought to build a pipeline that would take oil from Alberta in the west out to the west coast. And environmentalists basically said, well, you can't have a serious climate policy if you're going to be building oil pipelines. So he angered the environmentalists despite the carbon tax, but he didn't do enough to please Alberta where his liberal party was pretty much wiped out in this election. What's your take on that controversy and the degree to which Mr. Trudeau's environmental policies are are enough, are in line with his promises? I would say in principle, Trudeau has taken a, a rather Solomonic line on climate change. You know, on the one hand, he has set a minimum price for carbon across the country, which is important if you want to reduce emissions. You know, on the other hand, if a pipeline is competitive with a proper price for carbon, then my view is that the pipeline should go ahead. I think where Trudeau can be faulted is that the price for carbon right now is pretty low. It's 20 Canadian dollars a ton. It's set to rise by $10 a year over the next few years. But in order for it really to have an effect, it needs to be much higher than that. So it has to keep rising. And, you know, Trudeau did not, during this campaign, go to the extent of saying, yeah, this carbon price is going to keep rising. And, you know, he made a couple of promises related to climate. One is he promised that Canada would be a net zero emitter by 2050. And the other promise he made was to plant, I think, two billion trees. Well, those are nice promises. But at the moment, the policy isn't good enough to get Canada to meeting its commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement. So he's got to go further in his second term. And what else can we expect from a second Trudeau term? Will he be weakened now in minority? What will keep him from enacting his agenda? He has a decent chance to get some of his top priorities through. I mean, one is he said he wants to go further on climate policy. The second is that he wants to enact a ban on assault weapons, which I think is a popular policy, even though Canada has a much lower level of gun deaths than the United States does. And he also wants to cut taxes again for the middle class. I think that should all be doable, even within a minority government. But this election has probably widened, especially regional tensions in Canada. The liberals were all but wiped out in Alberta, the oil-producing West. And at the same time, you've seen one party that's done very well is the Bloc Québécois, which is a separatist party from the French-speaking province of Quebec. So Quebec separatism had really not been an issue for the past several years, but, and I wouldn't expect it to come roaring back now, but it's on the agenda in a way that I don't think it had been before. But Canada hasn't seemed to suffer from the kind of push to extremism that we see, well, across the border, for example. 
Why do you suppose that is? Why does Canada seem somewhat immune to that kind of political polarization? There's a whole host of reasons ranging from historical to conjunctural. I mean, it is interesting that this election was really not about some of the divisive cultural racial issues that have prevailed in other democracies recently. You know, I think that's partly because of Canada's long tradition of being open to immigration, its sort of self-definition as a multicultural society. I think it's partly because Canada's Conservative Party has, by and large, resisted the temptation of racist populism. You know, it was interesting that the party closest to the nativist right, and I I wouldn't want to equate them with, you know, far-right nativist parties, but the so-called People's Party, which is skeptical of high levels of immigration, did very badly. The leader of that party lost his seat. So, These issues are there, but they haven't been weaponized politically in the way they have in some other societies. And so, although it was a pretty nasty campaign, it's kind of heartening that didn't take place on this sort of battleground of race and identity and immigration and was really more about such issues as climate and how do you help the middle class. And in the current world political climate, I think that's actually quite heartening. Thank you very much for your time, Brooke. Thank you, Jason. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary. Ten years ago this month, George Papandreou, then the newly elected Prime Minister of Greece, revealed that the government's accounts had been fiddled. Its budget deficit was double previous estimates. Investors panicked. Greece lost its access to capital markets and its debt turned to junk. Mr. Papandreou was forced to look to the European Union and the International Monetary Fund for help with a crisis that began to threaten other Eurozone countries. The Greek leader didn't quite come to Brussels with his begging bowl, but it felt like it. Mr. Papandreou, do you think that Europe has done enough to help Greece today? I think this shows its clear will, both to stabilise the Eurozone and Greece. Then came major spending cuts, higher taxes and a pensions freeze. The goal of cutting our deficit by 4% in 2010 will be uh, we are ready to take any measures in order to make this sure Greece plunged into one of the deepest downturns experienced by a rich country since the Second World War. With each international bailout came punishing austerity measures. And as the belt tightened, Greece's people protested. This country is engulfed in a crisis and for the past 48 hours has been tearing itself apart. Greece is getting poorer and it's losing its dignity. They didn't tell us the truth all these years. By 2015, the radical left-wing Syriza party, campaigning on a sharp anti-austerity platform, was able to take power. Now, a new and more moderate center-right prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, is trying to get Greece back on its feet. What chance does he have of guiding his country to a fuller recovery? When the crisis began in 2009, the euro had been around for a decade by that point. Rachana Shanbog is our Europe economics correspondent. And 
there'd been no planning for a state going bankrupt. There'd been no planning for a deep sovereign debt crisis. Uh, nobody had thought that a country might come close to leaving the euro. And so when it became apparent that Greece's books had been cooked, and in fact the fiscal deficit was three times bigger than original estimates, and it lost access to financial markets, the eurozone just had no institutions to equip it to deal with the crisis. And so how did the crisis then then play out? What was the impact on Greece over the ensuing 10 years? Governments at various points announced austerity programs in an attempt to win some credibility with the financial markets. They had to then seek bailout programs three times in all between 2010 and 2015 from the IMF and the European Union. And as part of those bailout programs, they had to also implement deep austerity. So the result was mass layoffs of public sector workers, deep wage cuts. Um, I think unemployment peaked at about 27%. At that time, GDP fell very sharply. The economy was depressed for the best part of a decade as a result. But this is no longer just about economics. Greece is facing an election where the far left party Syriza could come to power. And one of the low points came in 2015 when um, the the previous government, led by Alexis Tsipras, came into office determined to um, reject the terms of a new bailout. He held a referendum and um, the majority of the public voted in support of that idea. And it really looked like Greece was on the verge of leaving the euro and money started being pulled out of Greek banks. Greece was really near the brink. And as it happened, Mr. Tsipras stepped back from the brink, accepted the terms of a, of a third bailout, and actually quite assiduously hit the targets that had been set by the European creditors in terms of running fiscal surpluses, um, budget surpluses, and, and so on. Beyond just the sort of mechanics of its economy, what is Greece like now? I was in Greece a few weeks ago. I went to Athens. If you think back to the worst moments of the crisis there were there was violence there were protests outside the parliament the sort of central square in Athens on the streets here of Syntagma Square a battle has been fought and lost by protesters and now when you go it's bustling it's thriving you know the number of tourists visiting the country has, has risen dramatically certainly central Athens seems different there is you know more good news the The economy has been expanding since 2016. Unemployment is coming down, but it's still very high. Unemployment is about 17%. About 35% of young people are out of work still. And although GDP is now expanding, growth rates are still quite anemic. So we're only seeing about 1% to 2% a year. And how does Greece's leadership sort of fit into that recovery? And and how would you rate the the current leadership in terms of managing that reform as it continues? So Kyriakos Mitsotakis stood on a platform of returning Greece to growth, of doing reforms, cutting taxes, firing up the Greek economy. He's put forward a a pro-business budget. He's got very ambitious growth targets. And certainly the tone is um, very different compared with the previous government. Um, although the previous government, as I've said, was focused on the very stringent budget surplus targets that have been set by Greece's creditors, it lagged behind on the sorts of reforms that the creditors wanted to see Greece undertake and that, in fact, Greece needs to do in order to unleash growth. 
So, so far, it looks like Mr. Mitsotakis might be willing to, to do some reforms as well. And he's got quite a daunting challenge. He's got to deal with the legacies of the crisis. So banks are paralysed. They've got lots and lots of bad loans still on their balance sheets, which mean that they don't lend money. On top of that, he's also got to deal with long-standing problems with the Greek bureaucracy that in some ways are more typical of a developing country than they are of a member of the Eurozone. Well, when things were at their worst in Greece, the, the, the people took to the streets and let it be known that they did not like what was going on. And, and yet Mr. Mitsotakis has to continue to, to carry out these reforms, still more austerity than the Greek people would like. Are they going to let him do what he needs to do? Well, they've voted him in. So there's a recognition, perhaps, that things need to be done. Mr. Mitsotakis has said that he'll seek to renegotiate the terms of an agreement with the European creditors to try to loosen the fiscal straitjacket that, that Greece is in. That might help. But he has to prove that he's serious on reform. And businesses are, say they're you know, the most optimistic about the Greek economy that they have been in 12 years. But some of the changes that he'll need to enact are really deep. So, for example, at the moment, the tax base in Greece is very narrow. So rates are very high and a few people pay very large amounts of tax. But about 50% of the population don't pay any income tax. And so, you know, there are going to have to be some changes that might not be popular. And the question is whether Mr. Mitsotakis has the courage to drive those changes through. So there may yet be more drama to this story. Well, in fact, there's a dramatization out. You're the Minister of Finance. Your party promised the voters you'd wipe out the debt. Recounting the events of 2015, a highly dramatic moment when the Greek finance minister at the time, Yanis Varoufakis, would turn up to these meetings with you know, leather jacket and film follows him around. All the, the, the Greeks I spoke to in Athens weren't particularly thrilled at the prospect, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. Rachna, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Judging a book by its cover is generally frowned upon. But what about judging a stock by its ticker? The three- or four-letter symbols for stocks are generally just versions of the company name. Apple's is AAPL. Walmart, WMT. Uber is, well, Uber. But some get more creative, which can have a surprising impact on the company's bottom lines. Well, there are a lot of boringly named stocks on the various markets that exist. But there are a handful of cleverly, or should we say snappily named, stocks. James Tozer is a data journalist at The Economist. Moo, M-O-O, for Union Stockyards, a livestock company. Geek, for Internet America, a service provider. And one of my favourites, Spud, for One Potato 2, a restaurant chain. And there was a recent study produced by an economist at Pomona College and a few of his students. And what they wanted to do was to try and work out whether stocks that have a clever name were disproportionately successful relative to the enormous number of boringly named shares that exist on the market. Okay, so how did the likes of Moo and Geek and Spud do relative to the, the, the long list of boring ones? Well, what the students and their professor found, stocks and shares famously volatile, but over a very long period of time, this portfolio of 82 amusingly named company or stock tickers vastly outperformed the rest of the market. In fact, they worked out that over the period between 
1982 and 2006, if you'd invested a dollar at the start of that time in this portfolio of stocks, by the end it would have been worth more than $100. Of course, the market itself grew over the same period, but if you'd, if you'd just stuck an index tracker in, it would have been worth about $10. So the overall return over that period was, was nearly 10 times greater. So what's the, what's the causal link here? Why should a fun stock ticker symbol correspond to a better performing business? So one of the mechanisms that the authors propose is stock traders, they have this enormous number of companies that they're faced with. And if one is more likely to stick in the mind or make them chuckle or make them think, oh, that's a clever company, then over a large number of traders, that might amount to slightly more of them buying the stock. And of course, if there's more demand for stock, that drives the price up. And so over the very long term, you'd get disproportionate returns from you know, share names that, that stand out to people. So not a fluke then? Well, no. In fact, the authors were aware that a lot of research, particularly in social sciences, has failed to replicate a second time around. So 10 years on from their original study, they revisited it and they found that the same portfolio of stocks, rather the stocks that were still left because a few went out of business, a few merged, sold, delisted and so on, the stocks that were left still outperformed massively over the 10 years since they published this paper. And also they constructed a second portfolio of shares that had listed since they produced the last paper. There was one called Cake for Cheesecake Factory, Woof for a company which offers veterinary services, and one of my favorites is Pizza, which is for Papa John's Pizza, P-double-Z-A. And just like the previous portfolio, these, these new companies outperformed as well. So essentially, if I had no other information to go on, I should just pick some goofy stock names. Or rather, if I want my stock to do well, and when I list it, I should give it a goofy stock ticker symbol. Yes, absolutely. In fact, what you should do is buy as many of them as you can possibly find so that you're not beaten by a little bit of stock-to-stock variance. Just go all out on stupid names and you'll be onto a winner in the long term. Although I should say that past performance is no guarantee of future returns. As ever. James, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.